So you think about data intensity scale, geographic scale, business continuity. Those are really the things that mandate in today's world distributed databases. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we're joined by Spencer Kimball. Spencer is the co-founder and CEO of Cockroach Labs. He's a successful entrepreneur and has navigated corporate life too including working with Larry and Sergey at Google. Spencer talks with us about the genesis of CockroachDB and how that led him to building the next generation database company called Cockroach Labs. He discusses the importance of distributed databases and the use cases of where they do and do not fit. Spencer explains about the new realities of doing business across availability zones, across geographies and across clouds with diverse databases, which are always protecting information and maintaining continuity. He also shares some interesting thoughts on open source models and how to enable innovation whilst maintaining an advantage. Welcome, Spencer. Great to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Matthew. So, Spencer, can you give us a quick intro about you and what you do? I'm actually the CEO of Cockroach Labs, one of the three co-founders. Cockroach Labs is a database company. I'm about 50 years old, get there in another year. I'm married, I have one child, hopefully going to have another one soon. So a little bit oh, uh, wow. late on the fatherhood front, but <laughs> better late than never. Wow, well, well, congratulations ahead of time. So super. So look, from a career perspective then, how did you get started and how did you end up here? Well, I've always loved computer programming. So even when I was 12 and I had my first computer, which is a TI-99 and okay. that was a Texas instrument and had like a cassette that you would record your computer programs on. You know, I'd spent all my time programming. So I, from that early age, there was never really anything else that I seriously entertained that I would do. Went to computer science uh, in university at Berkeley and got every single job I've had in my life has been, you know, around software engineering and sometimes as an entrepreneur, sometimes as an, as an employee at a larger company. And so it's just been one thing after another. I've very rarely taken time off between any two different subsequent engagements. As an employee, where have you worked before? Let's see. I worked at Anderson Consulting before it became Accenture. That was a relatively short-lived stint. I then did my own. So actually, you asked which big company. So Google was a, a big one, which I worked at for almost a decade. So about nine and change, nine years and change. And then I worked at Square. So that was when it was still a relatively small company and worked there for a relatively short time. And all the other engagements have been startups that I was a co-founder in. Well, look, so I, I usually ask this question, but I think we've already got the answer. So that's, you know, were you planning on this as your career path? And what did you want to do when you left school? Well, actually, it's, it's, it, there's a little bit more nuance there. I thought when I left school that I really wanted to work in financial services, investment banking, or trading even, something like that. It just really had held, held quite an allure for me. Certainly having something that would be related to computer science in, in those fields, of course. And I got really close to doing that. But then the, the sort of siren call of the dot-com boom, the height of the dot-com boom was too much to ignore. So I ended up back in the Bay Area, but I got very close to moving to New York City and taking a job in finance. So looking back then, Spencer, what would you say has been your career-defining moment? It's a good question. I think probably the initial funding of Cockroach Labs. So that's relatively recent, about eight years ago. 
it was a very career defining moment because a database was something that I pretty much wanted to build for the preceding 10 years, maybe even 12. And uh, you know, since I left school, databases were the biggest challenge that I faced in essentially every engagement and yet never got around to building one. And so when I finally took the plunge, getting all the interest that we did get from some pretty top tier VCs and then closing that round with Benchmark and Google Ventures and Sequoia, that really did feel like we were off to the races. And then from a professional perspective, and you may have just answered that, what's been your proudest moment? Probably, yeah, I may have just answered that, honestly. I, I, I think if I was going to switch those two, maybe there's a little bit more nuance. The career-defining moment is, is something else I already just mentioned, but it was the decision to return to the Bay Area, really to do a tech startup. You know, like I, I, I was mentioning before, there was really a, a fork in the road for me, whether I was going to go into finance or into tech. And it was the, you know, some some folks that I that I knew that wanted to have me as a co-founder in a company. And that's what pulled me back. So, you know, that that fork in the road, boy, would have been maybe, maybe I would have ended up in the same place, but most likely not. So that that was career in finance versus a career as an entrepreneur. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So, Spencer, before we kind of get into the serious questions, I, I do have to ask, you know, as a founder, I'm sure you had a choice, but but why Cockroach Labs? Yeah, this is a question that always comes up, and I actually love to field it because it it makes sense and it does actually help people understand, you know, what Cockroach Labs does. You know, to be fair, I didn't try to name the company anything to do with cockroaches. That, that wasn't the intent. The idea of cockroach database, which is what we build, was something that preceded the idea of building a company by some number of years. And it was really just a manifesto and a, and a project name, not really intended even necessarily to be built, but just a, an idea of, wow, this really needs to be something that's an open source that's a next generation database, like the things that were being built at Google. And this was when I had left Google and was thrown on the mercy of the open source ecosystem. And I said, you know what, we need to have a database like this. And it would be composed of many commodity pieces of hardware in the cloud, it would be super redundant, hard to kill. They'd sort of find their own equilibrium, they'd colonize the available disk space. So all of those characteristics, you know, just kind of popped in my head. Cockroach DB, this is the right name. And and, and then that became kind of a mind virus. So by the time I got to Square some, some years later and looked at the database landscape there and realized, actually, this thing really does need to be built now. The name CockroachDB had been bandied about quite a bit. You heard like Jack Dorsey refer to it as CockroachDB. And you just realized, you know, this is not something that, that we can walk back. It's, it's already too good of a name. And the reality is it does describe what the database does. So, you know, I still am wrestling with the legacy of that choice as I'm explaining the name to the global CIO of a, of a major bank. This happens at least every quarter. <laughs> well, I, it's definitely more memorable than Bulletproof Database Labs or Operational Resilience Labs. Or so. Yeah, absolutely. So on to more serious business then. Can you talk us through the attributes of the distributed database and why is there a need? Absolutely. You know, I, I would argue that a distributed database is quite an old concept. Certainly, Oracle's had what you would call distributed databases since the advent of Rack. What really, I think, defines the sort of flavor of distributed database, which Cockroach is, is, is a need to really use effectively and efficiently 
the sort of commodity hardware that you find in the cloud. Right? That, that's the critical thing. So it can't be specialized hardware. And, and a distributed database is, is just sort of the natural evolution of any of these architectures when you realize that you can only scale vertically so far. Right? And as you scale vertically, you're really limited to a single location where that hardware sits. And it might be a big supercomputer, very expensive, but it's still only in one location. So ultimately, you do have to distribute if you want to have the kind of business continuity that's required in most mission-critical applications because a data center can go down. So that means you have to be re replicating your data to another location. So you immediately have redundancy if you've got a failover or a distributed, you know, just a de facto distributed database just having failover. But then you start to realize in the, in the modern era, certainly since the advent of the, of the World Wide Web, that the scale that many applications have to grapple with rapidly exceeds what used to be called sort of enterprise scale, what a traditional Oracle database might you know, be able to accommodate. So that scale means that, okay, well, we really do need to put many machines together in some cases in order to you know, handle data from, say, hundreds of millions or even billions of agents or even actually human beings. And so that, that quickly exceeds the largest supercomputer that you might put to the task. And then you also have a very interesting new reality, which is multiple regions that you want to do business in. And this can affect, of course, multinationals that have customer bases that extend over all the, of the populated continents of the world. But actually, that's something that most startups, unless they have a very regional use case, I'd say it's more likely that they, they would like to have a global use case. Right? That's what they're building for. Let's say you're trying to build a, a massive multiplayer game. Right? Of course, you want to have users in Australia. How do you grapple with the latencies to Australia? Right, so that actually does necessitate not just an idea of distributed because you're putting lots of smaller commodity hardware together to get a, a, a large database, but actually geographic scale. That's a level of sophistication that really, I think we're still at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what is going to be done over the next 10 years. But all of those factors, so you think about data intensivity scale, geographic scale, business continuity, those are really the things that mandate in today's world distributed databases. And, and most people don't think of, for example, Postgres as being a distributed database. But if you use Postgres uh, in a, Amazon's Aurora product, it is distributed. It's distributed under the covers. And that's how they get their business continuity, their resilience capability. So most databases are, in fact, distributed in 2022. Is this similar to to the conversations that occurred about many technologies, so blockchain a few years ago. Is this the case of a technology looking for a, an appropriate use case and and you'll continue looking to your final? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, listen, I, I worked at Google for 10 years and at this point, virtually everything that they store that has to do with operational data is on Spanner. And so it, it, Spanner is no doubt the one of the largest databases now in terms of total data stored in the world. And so, you know, there's, there's every reason to believe that that trend will continue. And as I said, even Amazon or AWS Aurora, which is by far their fastest growing product, you know, hosting tens of thousands of companies' operational data, that's also a distributed database. And they're working to make it more distributed in terms of scale. So I think the, the use cases that demand these capabilities are, are actually the norm today, as opposed to the, you know, you know this is a, a very... Um, newly ascendant luxury kind of capability. Now that might be true in Cockroach's case because we are quite sophisticated on the sort of spectrum of distributed databases. But you know what, what we've seen is that 
the, the our market has changed very rapidly. And over the eight years we've been in business, things that we were educating the market on five years ago are now things that the world's biggest companies are actually demanding in their use cases. So I expect that uh, trend is going to continue. Really, what we've always been trying to do is lead the target a little because it takes a while to build these things and then to get them very stable in production. And so we, we don't want to be too far behind that curve. We want to really try to meet the target so that the timing works out nicely. And I think we've done that. So, you know, the the innovations actually must continue. And we're, we're always trying to look, say, three years into the future, five years into the future in terms of our innovation programs. You've mentioned use cases. So what would be a, a perfect use case for Cockroach? Um, and perhaps to explain to people why a standard database would not meet that demand. Yeah, an absolutely perfect use case would, would use all three of those, those differentiating capabilities that distributed addresses. So in our case, without question, data intensivity is, is the, the most important differentiator for folks. So it's, okay, so we actually want to store hundreds of terabytes. We want to store petabytes. And if, if that's a need, then wow, you, you need a real distributed database. You need one that's not just going to distribute reads, for example, which is something you can get out of some of the older open source technologies, but something that truly distributes writes. So you're talking about huge numbers of uh, concurrent writers in the system that you can just never accommodate in a traditional database with some read replicas, for example. And then we're talking doing a more sophisticated kind of replication, which is called consensus replication. So you want to involve not just a failover that you might have to go to in the case of a disaster recovery and have an expensive potential, you know, with the potential of data loss recovery step, but something where you're using three or more data centers actively. And when you do have a, a failure of some sort, you actually have maybe several seconds of latency, but no data loss and complete business continuity. In other words, your application teams aren't doing postmortems. So if, if that kind of mission criticality is a requirement of the use case, then the, the cockroach's consistent replication is something that you really need. And then finally, and this is, I think, where the, the ultimate differentiator comes in, if you care about multi-region operation, whether that's because you, you care about data sovereignty, like you can only store a particular user's data in certain countries or in certain regions, or you want to have the latency work very well, for example, an Australian user's data that's really specific to one user or one account or one company. If you have a SaaS product, that's only in Australia because that's the only way to really make that, you know, the, the right kind of latencies for the use case. And if there's data, for example, if you're building Quora or Twitter or something like that, that needs to be read everywhere in the world. You want that to be efficiently replicated everywhere so that you have very high consistency, low latency uh, access to that data globally. So all of those things, if you need those three, wow, Cockroach is the ultimate slam dunk technology <laughs> for you. And we actually see that that's not that uncommon. And as, as I was saying before, these, these things that seem fairly kind of on the bleeding edge, they might have been five years ago. Nowadays, most people understand this use case. And so we see it in financial services. Absolutely. Uh, we certainly see it in gaming. We see it in big tech everywhere and um, retail as well. So those four verticals, those are, those are where we see the, the biggest traction for all three of those uh, central pillars for distributed capabilities. A lot of what you covered there, we're seeing some of the, the kind of like the new core banking offerings choosing distributed databases and, and particularly yours. Does that take you into being you know, critical in the eyes of banking regulators? And, and you know, is, that, is that something that, that you know, a, a company like, uh, like Cockroach Labs really wants to be doing? 
It's a good question. I mean, specifically CockroachDB, I don't think we're very much, you know, widely at least on the, the banking regulators radar. But, you know, what the, the world's biggest banks are doing uh, are very much on the regulators radar. And so to the extent that we are educating these banks as our prospective customers and actual customers, we can actually allow them to do things that push the envelope. Right. As as one example, and I think this is something that we'll we'll probably touch on later. How can you survive a systemic cloud failure or security threat if you actually decide that you need to move from one cloud to another? What's the state of the art in terms of being able to accommodate that sort of flexibility? Could, does it take thirty days to, to to move your whole application? Is it something that could take thirty minutes or thirty seconds? <laughs> These are interesting questions, right? And to the extent that we have a, a banking customer, let's say the world's one of the world's largest uh, five banks, you know that actually pushes that, implements that, demonstrates that, that can actually become a, a a recommended practice from a regulator, and that eventually, what is a sort of a luxury item, can become standard equipment. So in five years, is that actually the expectation? And so the, these regulations evolve as the state of technology evolves. And so we want to be a part of that, but it's in partnership with our customers. One question I've got based upon what you've just talked about, Spencer, regardless, you talked about four industries. So, so industry agnostic and, and without naming names, who who's at the, the front end of those conversations? Who's bending that curve? Who's leading that conversation with you as a customer? Um, and what is it that they're looking to do that's stretching the way that Cockroach is enabled to support them? Well, it depends on the capabilities. I mean, we did just talk about regulations and data sovereignty regulations in particular. We see that in financial services, this shouldn't really come as a surprise. You know, certainly, maybe not more often always, but with a greater degree of appreciation for the, you know, the the, the most innovative um requirements that could be satisfied. So I, I think that it matters more in that vertical. And we also see it in retail, for example, and you know, just kind of how do we do the right thing with customer data for different regions that we want our operational database to accommodate. But they're not really pushing the state of the art. They don't have the, the same impetus that the financial services companies do. Uh, so that multi-region side of things where you really care about data sovereignty, I'd say that's the financial services vertical that's pushing the state of the art. And you're talking about just scale and data intensivity scale, like how much data is under management and how quickly is it growing? It's big tech. I mean, some of these use cases are, are, are mind-blowing, right? The total amount of data that they're starting to write, you know, every day, and it's accelerating in, in many cases. So, you know, I, I'd say that they're, they're sort of pushing us in terms of, actually, certainly data intensivity, but another one that I'd call out, which is quite interesting, is unlike financial services, the, the sort of let's call it um, very aggressive, maybe Wild West cowboy usage of databases and big tech would make, would make your head spin. <laughs> you guys are both in financial services, and I think people are, are relatively careful in that vertical in terms of all the testing they do and the operational rigor and so forth. In big tech, I think people treat databases, they sort of sling them around, they, they blow them away, they like knock the nodes down, they add things and willy-nilly and and, and really, that's pushed us quite a bit. We've had to become quite sophisticated in, in terms of making sure that uh, you know, Cockroach lives up to its name and we can handle like you know, increasingly 
bizarre edge case failures and things like that. So that's that, that's really pushed us. And just in terms of operational capabilities, just how, how resilient the database is in practice. And then I think that I'd also call out gaming as a pretty interesting, maybe sub-vertical of tech. Latencies really matter for them. So how we actually deal with some of the problems around geographic scale, really building global use cases, that's one where you know, the, the latencies down to milliseconds actually become quite you know, important. And obviously that could happen with high frequency trading, but I, I think now you're talking about latencies that actually you know, would make cockroach a poor choice for a high frequency trading system because you know, cockroach is looking at business continuity as one of the, the core tenants. And if you're, if you're trying to replicate across data centers, you're, you're already out of the game for high frequency trading. So you know, the, I'm not, the latency stuff does matter in, in other verticals, but gaming, we've seen that there's just a, an amazing match in terms of the desired requirements for the use case and the capabilities of cockroach. So pushing that a little further then and being mindful it's a small industry, who are the other players in this space and, and what differentiates them? Well, we always think our true north competitor as AWS. And that's not surprising. I, I believe they're certainly the world's fastest growing database vendor. I think they might actually be the largest at this point. I'm not 100% sure about that. I don't know if that's public information. It is now. <laughs> I mean, I, it's not something I know. I'm just guessing. I just have oh, right, not okay. seen like an authoritative <laughs> source on that. But I, I do know it's one of their highest margin businesses as, as, as they are, as they admit. It's not surprising to me. I mean, operational databases is, a, is definitely a, a good business to be in if you're getting the customers to match your capabilities, I guess. They actually do see the world really similarly to us in terms of the resilience capability. I think just developer friction and how that can be decreased with operational databases and particular databases as a service that they innovated there 100%. I mean, they, they're the ones that created this category. They're increasingly talking about scale, global, serverless, these are all things that are obviously top of mind for us as well. And they have an, the incredible advantage of having a hyperscaling cloud platform, right? They, in fact, they're the incumbent there. So it, I'd say that in some dimensions, they're definitely more advanced. They've been at the database as a service game longer than we have. They actually give every popular open source database that exists on the planet almost, you know, for their developers to choose from. And they're all well integrated into their platform. So, you know, those are really things that I think make them quite differentiated in the space. In other areas, though, I think that they have incomplete sophistication. And, and part of the reason for that is that they're modifying legacy open source technologies for the most part. And when you're modifying something like Postgres or MySQL in order to build increasingly sophisticated versions of Aurora, it's kind of like the effort required is proportional to the degree to which your changes are modifying the underlying source. So it's like they, they're kind of pushing, a, pushing towards the speed of light, right? Where it increases, you, you, you actually end up having requiring infinite energy to actually get there. So, you know, that, that is an advantage that we have. We're, we're built from the ground up with this architecture in mind, and we own the entire tech stack. So it allows us to create more sophistication, move more quickly. And then I think the other really big advantage that we have, you might call it a, you know, a, a chink in their armor, is they're very inward focused on AWS. Whereas most customers that, that we're serving are quite interested in flexibility, at the very least, in terms of the cloud that they're operating in, if not a, a sort of active utilization of multiple clouds at once. And they don't want to be locked in. In fact, that is something that they're allergic to, I think it's safe to say. So that is an, an area where we can innovate and differentiate. Now, 
AWS, I mentioned, we also, of course, have lots of legacy competitors. There's IBM with DB2, you know, all the, all the mainframe business, which is quite a massive in- install base out there. There's Microsoft. They've got cloud databases. They've got the venerable SQL Server. There's Oracle, of course, also similar to Microsoft, I'd say, just in terms of they have a, a cloud product. They've got the you know, most used, let's say, commercial legacy database. And then there's a whole number of fast followers, right? There's Yugabyte, PingCap is a Chinese company that makes a database called TidyB. There's PlanetScale. There's a bunch of even newer companies out there on the market. Everyone is sort of targeting a slightly different segment of the market. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses. I'd say that Cockroach, at least in this new generation of distributed databases, is we were first to market. And uh, I think we got started maybe a year or two earlier. That head start does actually matter in the business. It unquestionably takes a lot of time to build and, and, and to mature a, a product or technology like this. So that, that does give us some advantage. I say that if I was going to try to characterize where we are in the market, I think that we tend towards trying to serve the world's largest businesses that have really mission critical use cases. And, you know, it's not that we couldn't be used for smaller, fast starts, startups, that sort of thing. In fact, we have plenty of those kinds of customers, but you really do want to keep your focus relatively limited when you're at the the scale and that, that Cockroach Labs is. You know, it's like, who's your ultimate ideal customer? What is that profile? How do you get more of those? How do you serve that to the best of your ability? And, and ultimately, the one that we're targeting is, of course, a very, very valuable segment in the market. Certainly, I, I, would, I would call it the most valuable. It's slower moving, but the potential for expansion in any of these accounts is truly enormous. And, and ultimately, what you're doing is you're powering the world's commerce, the world's technology, the, the apps that everyone needs day to day in order to, to make life run smoothly, right? So that's a, it's a good place to be. And I think from that position, it's a good place to then expand laterally. One of the advantages that I can see of, of being independent as the, as the distributed database and not tied into a specific cloud provider or, or not from a specific cloud provider is obviously you can choose which cloud. But you know, can we explore a little further then around the multi-cloud side of things? You know, it, From your perspective, is that multiple availability zones from a single cloud provider or or is it truly multiple clouds you know what are the use cases and and what what are the demands you're you're getting yeah so i think there's sort of three levels to it and we see all three the first is what you said just using different availability zones i'd say that's the base case it would be rare to see a cockroach cluster in production that isn't replicating across availability zones within a region it's relatively fast you don't have network costs between those availability zones, at least not that are significant. And it's, there's, I think every region has at least three of these. So it, it actually, you know, it, it's sort of custom made for this. And this is, by the way, is how Aurora runs, for example. So it's a very common pattern. So that's the base case. We see a lot of ask for multi-cloud and you have to be, you have to ask another question to find out what, what the actual use case requirement is. A lot of times people just want cloud portability. In other words, they want to be able to say, okay, we have a certain time frame in which we would need to move from AWS to Azure. And th- those are our two clouds that we have big agreements with. This use case is running on AWS. We just need to make sure that within a particular time frame, we're able to, to move this, whether it's a backup and restore. Ideally, it's something where we can run two clusters and just do a failover. 
you, you just want to have different options available in order to have cloud portability. So that's what they mean by multi-cloud. What's something that, that I think the more exciting future state, which is really just getting on the radar, and it's something that we're ultimately looking to make a, a seamless experience in our databases service, is actively running across different cloud providers. Maybe even running, for example, across two public cloud providers in one private data center with you know fiber links, private links between them. And that actually has a, a really, I'd say, advantageous characteristic, which is that you would be able to survive you know, with, I'd say, um, very little interruption, maybe just some latency, an, an actual cloud failure. Like, you know, let's say that AWS has a DNS misconfiguration and they lose the East Coast region in the United States. Surviving that it would be quite a feat, right? Because normally that takes down most of the internet for the, uh, the United States. And it is quite possible. The problem, of course, with spanning across multiple cloud providers is there's a non-trivial networking cost to that. It's not necessarily slower or higher latency because these things are actually relatively close together and you can actually pay for the right kinds of networking links uh, on your own, which I think can help address some of that cost issue. But you start getting into really high-level agreements with the different cloud providers to put something like this together to really make it work well. And we're just, I think, on the cusp of starting to see that happen actively. There are definitely customers out there in the wild. We haven't run this as a database as a service yet, but I think it has been done and demonstrated. There's, there's certainly nothing that, that would prevent it from being done, and we're actually actively working with some customers to, to make this a reality. So I think this is one of those things, right? It seems novel and a, an amazing evolution, and only the most aggressive players would possibly consider it until it's not anymore. Right, because it is an interesting outcome. And I wouldn't say that it would be what I'd recommend for every use case, right? It's, it still is a, a lot of additional complexity with you know, potentially more things that could go wrong. And it's great that you can survive a cloud failure, but now you're dealing with three different clouds and all the idiosyncrasies. So you're admitting more complexity into your system, which is not something you, you want to do without a good reason. So I think that which use cases would actually make this seem like a, a good trade-off? Well, you know, how high value is the data? How absolutely mission critical? How much regulation is there? Are you going to, to, to push the envelope on, on the regulatory framework? And I think those, those definitely point towards things like financial services. So my head's spinning around synchronous data replication across data centers of a, of a distance apart. And, and, you know, and you're talking about a high-speed links inside of or between multiple cloud providers and you being able to run your banking system on it, which is kind of quite a, it feels a little bit science fiction. Well, it's actually interesting. I'll give you a little bit of color about that. You know, typically, as I said, folks are doing the replication across availability zones, let's say on the East Coast of the United States. It's a good setup, right? Typically, you don't lose the whole region, but you certainly could lose a, an availability zone and, and absolutely you lose nodes within a particular data center. That gives you on a transaction commit you know, maybe like less than 10 milliseconds of latency. I mean, that's certainly a um, good outcome for, for most use cases. Some, some like high-frequency trading <laughs> wouldn't want to do that, as I mentioned before. We actually do see customers that want to run across regions. And so that's actually quite a bit more latency. Like across, let's say, if you have something two East Coast, one West Coast, or you have like a central East-West, you're talking about somewhere between 35 and 60 milliseconds something like that to get to get a, a transaction committed. Now, if you're careful and you try to do everything in, in one transaction, 
in the course of satisfying a user operation, user-initiated operation, then the whole latency can be somewhere like 60 milliseconds or like maybe 100 milliseconds, something like that, because everything's pipeline and Cockroach is very careful about making sure that the latencies all overlap. They're not serially taken. Now, if you do something very naive with microservices, <laughs> which actually create very naive usages of databases underneath them, then you could create like this very serial set of transactions right? that, that take, this takes 60 milliseconds, then this takes 60 milliseconds. And the microservices chain together like 50 different things that happen in one user operation. Well, that, that doesn't work very well, right? So a, a well-designed application, and there's certainly plenty of them out there, and, and, and you, you may want to rewrite them if this is really an important characteristic of the system. You can say, okay, this is 100 milliseconds to do this transaction to, to handle the, the user-initiated action or operation. And that's great because now we can lose the East Coast of the United States and we have total business continuity. So again, that's like a high-value use case that would actually work well in that particular fund. So really it's about what are the requirements and then what are the, you know, what's the configuration of Cockroach to satisfy those requirements? And what we've seen is that you can pretty much do anything, right? But you're going to have to make some trade-offs. And those trade-offs often are quite reasonable. And so, like, that's, that's sort of the, the art, really, of composing these systems. And when you start talking about multiple hyperscale cloud vendors and, and linking them together, you're probably talking about within a region. So you'd use an AWS availability zone on US East, and you'd use a, a GCP US East, and you'd use a, an Azure US East. And there you're talking about like less than 10 milliseconds again. It's a little bit more overhead there. It could be a networking cost, but it's actually quite fast. And you, 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 you're not giving, getting regional survivability, but you are getting cloud survivability. So a DNS misconfiguration AWS, you still have business continuity. If there's a huge hurricane that totally wipes out the whole... U.S. East power grid, you know, maybe some of the clouds stay up for some time and you still have some continuity, but, you know, it, you, you have, it, it's all about non-correlated failure domains, right? So a big enough natural disaster could possibly still take you down in that case, but you probably have more protection than if you're all in AWS. I think what I got from that mostly was actually you can do it, but it's a lot to do with how well you design your app. You can't yeah. just like throw it all together and just assume it's going to work. I think that's very true. And I, in the eight years we've been doing Cockroach, to say that when we started, microservices were very much in vogue. And I think now there's a little bit of heartache about their overuse. They can, they can be difficult when they, when they proliferate to test and to, to, to manage. And that's certainly true in the connection between the application layer and the database. So I, I think that, yeah, it does come down to, to how the app's designed to a certain extent. And, and as I said, there's lots of ways to configure Cockroach, um, you know, to work well with microservices, for example. There's always a little bit of a dance there. So it's how the app's designed and it's how Cockroach is configured. But together, you really can make, we've seen some pretty incredible things made possible. So I think maybe the, the key here is there's some human ingenuity that is probably required. <laughs> <laughs> Spencer, you've talked about AWS and, and the hyperscalers. How do you fit in with some of the smaller cloud providers? Not you know, uh, not just the, the, the monolith ones that people are starting to investigate now, particularly around areas such as regulation, sovereign cloud, data sovereignty. How, you know, what type of conversations are you having in those spaces? Yeah, so Cockroach from the beginning has been just by customer demand, a, a system that you can self-host is what we call it. 
So many of our largest customers, even still, don't want to use a database as a service. They still want to run the databases, the operational databases themselves. It's very valuable data. They have a very sophisticated IT security posture. And that's just how they can start to consume new technologies. That's changing. Not, not a surprise to anyone. So we're seeing the appetite for a cloud database as a service increase pretty dramatically. If you run the database yourself, obviously you can run in your private data centers. You can straddle private and public clouds and so forth. And you can use whatever cloud providers, small or otherwise, that, that makes sense for you. So total flexibility if you're self-hosting. Our database as a service currently supports AWS and GCP only. And we're, we're, Azure is coming very soon. So that's going to be three cloud providers. And let me tell you, this, this may or may not be obvious to you already, but the idiosyncratic differences between the cloud providers are legion. I mean, it's really, you, know, you, said, you said your head is spinning, Matthew. It's, it, it makes my head spin, like all of the differences and the, the sharp edges and so forth. These clouds are, are, are nowhere near even similar in, in some cases. The concepts, of course, are similar. The technologies are similar, but the, the differences, I think, are 90-something percent of the work. And so supporting a new cloud is actually very non-trivial. And the more sophistication we add, for example, our serverless capability, which allows managing big fleets of virtual databases very cost-efficiently, that requires us to use Kubernetes in sophisticated ways and requires various technologies that we're using that are unique to AWS, unique to GCP, unique to Azure. So as we add things like serverless, and there's plenty of other things, we start to use more of the surface area of each of the clouds. And when you go to a smaller cloud vendor, sometimes that surface area is not even there. It, you know, Different or otherwise, it's just not even available because like, it's rack space or something like that. that. That means that you might have a cockroach database as a service over the fullness of time. It may not be quite the same capabilities that are offered as the database as a service that we offer in AWS. So it's a very complex landscape out there, Brian, to answer your question. And um, we will keep adding clouds that we support but I think that they'll probably be new clouds faster than we can add support for them. So I think that the, the ultimate, like, hey, you can do anything you want as you run Cockroach yourself in the environment you want. The database as a service, I think, will we'll, we'll support the clouds that really have sufficient demand to justify it. Okay, so jumping back to a little bit earlier, you mentioned some of the open source database and stuff. You know, Cockroach DB is open source, right? That's right. I mean, it started as Apache. Right now, we have a license called the BSL, the Business Source License, which was originally created by MariaDB. I can explain a little bit how it works. It's interesting. We made that transition in licenses because of what AWS did with Elasticsearch. So you know, we, we've long had a dichotomy in our capabilities between the open source core and a growing list of enterprise features uh, that have a different license. They're all source available. So it's not so much about protecting the ideas or anything like that or the source code. It's more just about like, how can we compete in the market, have a real business? We wanted to make sure that the most sophisticated capabilities, like geo-partitioning, for example, and for global usage, that's something that would be our enterprise license. And some things that started in the enterprise license become open source. For example, some of the capabilities in our backup restore, they, we, there was just such demand for them and people... You know, we started adding more and more sophistication in the enterprise side. So we said, hey, this is enterprise, but probably should be open source. So things can move. They, they never move to enterprise, but they move from enterprise to open source. 
what we saw, though, is that uh, AWS had become a little bit more aggressive with these open core companies. And they, they kind of, you know, listen, I, I understand why they do it. They obsess about their customer. I don't think that they, they worry about breaking eggs to make their omelets. <laughs> but they did really throw a grenade into the open core business model. So we decided that, you know what, the, our core, which was very sophisticated, the right way to think about our open source core is that we implemented everything in there up to the last mile. And then our enterprise features just had like little bits of things that were protected. Because so we figured, well, you know, you know, I, I worked at Google for 10 years. I know that Google wouldn't just reimplement those little bits to put a smaller company out of business. That's just not really what they, I think they'd, they'd, they'd be a little allergic to that. I mean, who knows Google in 2022, it's a different company, but AWS doesn't care about that. So when you have a very sophisticated core, you can get a little bit nervous. So what we decided is that we'd like to have a little bit more protection on that core. And what the BSL does, think of it as a little bit of patent protection, patent 17 years. With the BSL, you say how long you want some innovation protection. In our case, it's three years. So what happens is we release a version, let's say this month, that version for three years has one exclusion on it. You can use it every way you possibly use normal open source with one exception. That is you can't run cockroach that version of Cockroach for three years as a commercial database as a service. So think of it as like the anti-cloud competitor innovation protection. So you could you could run it yourself, not pay us a, a dime. I mean, you could run it internally as a database as a service in your bank and, and not worry about anything. It's really if you're just offering it externally as a commercial database as a service. After those three years, that version that was released today, so three years hence, that becomes Apache. So it leaves a, a legacy of open source that's pure, but it gives us a three-year protection from, let's call it a competitive pressure in the database as a service front. So I think that's proven to be a, a fairly non-controversial, in the end, change in the open source license. We were a little bit worried when we initially rolled it out, but our customers understand it, the open source community understands it. It's just the the reality of the world, if you really want to build a business on open source, this is actually one way to do it. And we've seen quite a few other startups adopt this BSL program as well. So that kind of gives you an idea where we are on the open source side. Now, as we start building a database as a service, there's lots of stuff that actually ends up being closed source. And we're, we're not so interested in making that whole database as a service open source. So the, the core database, running, self-hosting the database and so forth, that's all source available, BSL. And there's lots of additional things we build as we build this database as a service that are closed source. So we, we kind of have both, but the but Cockroach itself is open source. I think the open source question is a really, really good question in terms of what's happening in the industry, how people look at it, how the customers look at it, what they believe open source will give them, and then determine, did it give me the rich gravy that I was hoping for? You did mention one thing earlier on when we talked about regulatory. Given where you sit and the type of conversations that you're being poured into, and we talked about maturity of cloud services, recoverability, are there any specific regulations that you you track or you, you keep an eye on to ensure that you're capable of supporting them? Anything like that that you do? We actually don't do too much with direct regulations. I mean, we're aware of some of the things that are starting to evolve. You probably know that in the United States, um, separate states are starting to come up with separate regulations, and there's just not a consistent sort of federal regime for them. Some states feel like, you know, the like New York, for example, California, for example, that they want some of the same consumer protections that the GDPR affords Europeans. 
And I think they're a little bit ahead of the sort of federal consensus. So that you can imagine 50 states, if everyone goes their own way, that does make doing business relatively difficult. So when we think about it, we try to stay a level higher in terms of the abstraction or maybe a level lower, which is what are the core capabilities, like the foundational building blocks that we can focus on for CockroachDB that you could use to satisfy any regulatory regime, right? So that sort of level of thinking is is a lot more tractable, right? Just as the complexity proliferates in, in, in all of these different regulations. I mean, I think there's, I can't remember the exact number, so I'm just going to, you know, put a little tilde by it. But it's something like 100 different countries have their own data regulations. Sometimes, like in Vietnam, it's just one that happened. No, they require one copy to be stored in Vietnam, <laughs> right? Where the rest is, it doesn't matter, but one copy has to be there. Okay. You know, so obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about how Cockroach works as a distributed system. That's quite easy to satisfy. Right? You can you can really put a an arbitrary configuration in terms of exactly how you want your data laid out. This is a non-voting replica. It just needs to be, it needs to match a region that's Vietnam, right? All the other replicas for speed are going to be running in, you know, AWS is, you know, APAC region that's that's close to Vietnam, but has exactly the right characteristics for low latency interconnects and so forth. That's all doable, right? And so you really have tons of flexibility. And that's, I think, the right foundation to to satisfy arbitrary use cases. So what should we have asked you? Or are you surprised we haven't asked you about? Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna suggest the greatest failure. <laughs> okay, go on. Okay. Well, you know, there's there's always ups and downs in, in doing a startup and certainly bringing a, a technology like this to market. The greatest failure that you could ever imagine is you is you have a problem with someone's data. I mean, this is a survivable system and um, this is mission critical apps. And I, I'm happy to report that we have never lost anyone's data. We did have a corruption though, and this was very early in our 1.0 product. And we lost a customer because of it, which... Nothing has, has made me sadder, honestly, because it was a good customer. And, and ultimately what happened is we, we, we suffered a corruption. It was in some indexes and we couldn't explain it. And, and part of the reason for that was that we started off using Facebook's RocksDB, which is a kind of lower level derivative of something Google built called LevelDB. And it's, think of it as it's the single node storage system. And of course, we, we then hook up multiple nodes together. And that's sort of the magic of Cockroach. But down at the single node level, the single drive level, there's a RocksDB instance that, that handles that data. We couldn't find the problem. Facebook couldn't find the problem. Nobody could find the problem. And that, that really did create a, a problem for this customer, you know, understandably, I'd say. And I think we never found the problem. But we know what we did. We decided that we were going to re-implement RocksDB so that we understood the entire stack. RocksDB has become very complex. And it is very complex because it, it just handles everything you can imagine you might want to do with a single node storage system. We, we built something that we, we call Pebble, uh, which, you know, RocksDB Pebble. And, and Pebble is written in Go. RocksDB was written in C++. So there was a there's sort of a language disconnect there. And there was inefficiencies in, in that, in the communication between Go and C++. But I think more, all of the cockroach engineers that are used to working in Go can easily now transition into the Pebble code base, that storage system for a single node. That was the work of about a year to build and then another year to roll out and harden. And you could you could run either RocksDB or Pebble, and you know that switchover happened gradually as as the system proved itself. 
Now we've been running, and we don't remember RocksDB anymore, but we own all the way down the stack, which actually is not just beneficial because now we have transparency into the problems that might occur. It also allows us to do a lot of innovation at that low level. Like innovation that can extend in terms of its impact all the way up, for example, to the transaction model. So there's a lot of value to owning the stack, which I think kind of references the earlier comments I was making about the difficulty AWS has consistently trying to improve you know, 20-year-old open source database technology that they, they're not the core committers on. Right? It just really does matter what you have control over when you're building something that needs to be high performance and admit quite a bit of complexity over time. Genuinely, you blow my mind there. There's so, so much. Well, actually, there's a lot I thought I knew and there's a lot I've learned. So that's super. Okay, we're gonna, we'll change the pace a little now. Let's move now to a crystal ball. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. Okay, Spencer, you've covered so much ground there. That was incredible. So changing this a little then. So what do you think will be one of the most significant game-changing technologies for 2023 and beyond? And, and how do you think that's going to either help or hinder financial services? I mean, the thing that everyone's talking about, and for, I think, very good reasons, is these uh, generative pre-trained transformer models, right? So GPT-3, and I, I know GPT-4 is, is promised in short order. And I'm sure you've played with ChatGPT and with Dolly, maybe. And it's, it's frankly incredible. And many businesses are being built on this. I'm sure many businesses in fintech are going to be built using these. I think you know, from, uh, let's say, a bank's perspective, maybe this could help with online banking, customer service, basically. But you do have to be very careful with these models. You've probably seen this as well. They, they can be world-class spinners of nonsense that looks pretty plausible. So you, you kind of need to have a, 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 a model that checks the outputs of the generative AI in order to see that it you know, conforms to some degree of reality. I actually think that that might help the bank, but uh, I, it's probably the, the kind of up-and-coming fintech startups that that find really novel uses, that their whole focus is dedicated to trying to, to commercialize that technology in that vertical. I think that the hindrance of financial services could be potentially massive. I actually see these generative AI models as being extremely good at spoofing human behavior. So if you think about social engineering, this might be a way to, to really in, launch a massive scale you know, social engineering project to to get uh, consumer banking credentials, that sort of thing, that looks very human. It feels like you're interacting with a customer service, you know, person in the bank. You know, you just need a little bit of information leaked about who's, you know, who's got an account, where their account is, maybe even who their banking, you know, professional is. And it might be difficult, really, to, to stem that tide. And I think that fraud is always a big problem for banks, but this does feel like you could supercharge that. Lots of conversations taking place on that and, and you know, perhaps where where you can now, through that same API, get it to speak using your voice. So maybe future wow. episodes of this, Brian, could all be GPT-based. But, we're redundant. But equally... I think that's what we've just basically <laughs> said. We're, re we're redundant. The, 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 voice um, thing is the, the voice thing is the most... I was reading something this morning about voice recognition and being able to mimic your voice in three seconds or something weirdly bizarre. So that's petrifying. Okay. Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, having worked on that other side, you know, there's a lot of, there were a lot of 
um, my voice is my passport in the past <laughs> saying yeah voice is your passport and and all of a sudden you know someone's pinched it so well and and distributed it you know everywhere around the world it's quite incredible Thank, yeah, and, and she translated your... it into translated it into 16 different languages so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> okay let's move on and have a little bit of fun uh we usually call it the lightning round okay welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round the lightning round begins now Okay, so this is our fun round. A pass is okay, but when we see you next time, we might have a little bit of fun at your expense. And, you know, ask answer as many as you want. So I'll start with an easy kind of chilling question. So favourite book or movie? Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. If you had a time machine, would you go forwards or backwards? Definitely forwards. Okay. Tea or coffee? Tea. First concert or live performance you ever saw? B-52s. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what lobster there you go <laughs> last concert live performance you saw i think it was roger waters okay yeah. okay still pretty good very good very good um who is your mentor or have you been most inspired by i think it was working with larry and sergey google yeah that's a hard one to beat right it's tough to beat yeah what piece of career advice do you wish you'd given to your younger self start off at a company where there's a lot for you to learn, like the best company that you can find. Boat, train, or plane? Boat. Edge or cloud? Cloud. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not popular, but... (laughs) What is the worst job you've ever had? I was a bagger at a grocery store. There we go. There we go. Builds character. Yeah. If you were an ice cream, what flavor would you be? Mm, pistachio. Oh. Okay. If you had to sing karaoke, what song would you pick? Oof, so many. Uh, probably Yellow Lead Better by Pearl Jam. Well, okay. What's your most used emoji? The little praying hands. Like this. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite breakfast food? And do you always choose it when it's on the menu? Eggs Benedict. And almost always, yeah, especially if it's some kind of weird variation on it. Uh, 100% with you. That's that's my go-to. If it's on the menu, I have to have it. It's like Cloudy Bay Sauvignon Blanc. That's on the menu. <laughs> I have to have that too. Usually at the same time. Okay, last time you used cash, when and what for? Street vendor. And it probably was, it was with my daughter, so it must have been pretty recently maybe like a couple months ago favorite gadget or piece of technology my iphone okay i have to do the iphone question then so you have to delete all but three apps from your iphone which three do you keep kindle gmail and messages okay if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive who would it be doesn't have to be one person probably obama all right my last one then. What's one thing that I can steal from you as a great idea? Stop reading the news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really makes okay, for a happier a life, idea. believe me. You don't miss that much. You, you find out everything <laughs> from your friends, and that's a better filter than listening to the alarmism. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, last Talk, one from yeah. me. Uh, Talking what's... of alarmism, Brian, someone's at your front door. Yeah, someone's at my front door. So I'm going to go, I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite place of all the places you've traveled? I'm now going to go and get the door. The Maldives. <laughs>
Oh, great choice. Great choice. Okay, uh, Spencer, thank you so much. Been really, really interesting and fun talking with you. How can our listeners know or get to learn more about you and Cockroach Labs? Well, our website, I think, is the, the best place to start. So that's cockroachlabs.com. And for me, I think where I've talked the most has been on podcasts like this. So Google search probably will turn up some interesting nuggets. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. It's been great being on. Thank you, Matthew. As always, if we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team or you can contact us through LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew Owen or our podcast on Twitter at dbtbpod. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or would wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.